Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. So there's a question that I get a lot that um, I have a hard time answering. It's not one you would think. It's not like a deep theological question or, um, you know, some like social issue or something like that. It's the question, what was I like as a kid? It's a very difficult question to answer. I don't exactly know how to put it into words. But the other night, uh, we introduced our kids to the classic of all classic movies, and I figured out the perfect way to answer the question. You see, as a kid, I was exactly like Ham Porter. (laughs) Ham Porter, what movie is this from? Sandlot. I was exactly like Ham Porter from the Sandlot. When I say that I was like Ham, I don't mean I was kinda like Ham. I don't mean I was a little bit like Ham. I mean I was exactly like Ham Porter. I feel like watching the movie, it was like watching somebody had like a, uh, I don't know, they're like following my childhood around with a camera. That's what it feels like. I was chubby, like Ham. I was sneaky athletic though. You know what I mean? Like one of those guys that you walk onto a court or a field and they're like, (laughs) and you're like, just wait, just wait. I may not look exactly like it, but I am like it. Okay, you get ready. I was a lover of s'mores. That has not changed. Still a big fan of s'mores. I was an unmatched trash talker. Just, it's one of my spiritual gifts. (laughs) I was overconfident, but really just hiding some deep insecurities, you know, like we all are. And I was always right in the middle if any scuffle was going to break out, you know? Like, it was just me in the middle. I probably started the scuffle, honestly, when I was a kid. That was me as a kid, and it was Ham Porter too. But the thing I love so much about the Sandlot is that Ham was loved and accepted just as he was, right? And it wasn't just true for him. This was true for every single one of those kids. Those kids were more than teammates, even more than just good friends. Those kids were like a family, We see this uh, so clearly when a new kid named Scotty Smalls come to town, right? Smalls doesn't know anyone, doesn't know how to play baseball, doesn't even know what a s'more is, which elicits the famous line from Ham Porter. Does anybody know what it is? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls. Smalls says, how can I have some more if I haven't had any yet? You're killing me, Smalls. But despite all that, The Sandlot boys take Scotty in, teach him how to play baseball, even risk their little lives to get back a ball from a dog named Hercules so that Scotty can repair a broken relationship with his stepfather. Now, obviously, this is just an idyllic movie and relationships are complicated, but I don't think there is a person on earth who watches the Sandlot and doesn't long for the familial love that these kids had for one another. This longing is deeply embedded in our DNA. You see, as image bearers of God, we were created out of relationship with God and created for relationship with God and with each other. But somewhere along the way, and and for a myriad of reasons, relationships get broken, right? Trust gets shattered. Has this ever happened to you? 
Have you ever experienced broken relationships or broken trust? Maybe it was when you were a kid, like around the Sandlot age. Someone who was supposed to protect you and provide for you didn't. Maybe they even did the opposite and you've been struggling to kind of trust people ever since. Maybe it was when you fell in love with someone. You trusted them when they said that they loved you too. And maybe they did, but there was this betrayal. And the partner you thought you had wasn't really a partner at all. I've seen this happen in business multiple times. There's somebody that you go into a contractual agreement with, a a partnership with, expecting that you're both going to end up fulfilling your ends of the deal, but they don't. Or even worse, they were pretending to the whole time, and you find out much later that actually, behind your back, they've been doing a bunch of different things that is not only bad for this relationship you had with them, but bad for you financially. Maybe not letting you care for your family. Or maybe it's pastors, politicians, other institutional leaders who have let you down. They've broken trust so many times, it's no wonder you don't believe people when they make promises anymore. If you've walked this earth for any significant amount of time, you have been betrayed. You've had trust broken. You've had your heart broken. It is a universal human experience. And when it inevitably happens, the most natural response, the most really human response is to pull away from each other, to pull away from love. Because to love someone else means putting ourselves at risk of being hurt again. To allow someone to love us, to truly see us, know us, means being vulnerable. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis captures this feeling perfectly, I think. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. The point C.S. Lewis is making is that you can push away love. You can choose to not be vulnerable ever again. You can lock your heart and your vulnerability away. And yeah, it might never get broken again, but something maybe far worse would happen. Now, this vulnerability is particularly difficult in a church, especially when you've experienced church hurt or spiritual trauma of some kind. But here's the thing. I believe being vulnerable enough To give and receive love, especially in a healthy local church, is so worth it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course you believe that, Zach. You're a pastor. Come on. And you're right. I am, and I am biased. So don't take my word for it. Every year for the last 20 years, Gallup has conducted a poll asking Americans to assess their mental health. It probably doesn't surprise you that the scores were very, very bad over the last couple of years. We feel more isolated, alone, depressed, and anxious than at any other time since they started doing the poll, and not just by a little bit, by more than eight percentage points on average. 
And Gallup, usually when they do this poll, they find that certain subgroups experience worse mental health based on what happened in any given year, but not in 2020 and 2021. Literally every single subgroup experienced a decline in mental health. Every race, gender, political affiliation, sexual orientation, marital status, age group, household income group, everybody. And right, these aren't just statistics on a page. These numbers represent our family, our friends. They represent me and you. Almost everyone I talk to knows someone who has lost a loved one to COVID, lost a job, struggled with anxiety and depression over the last couple of years, felt alone. We've walked through a lot. It's not just COVID. Mass shootings, abuse scandals, wars, refugee crises, multiple contentious election cycles, an insurrection, a sharp rise in white Christian nationalism, racism, sexism, homophobia. It's no wonder the Gallup poll showed that every group saw a decline in their mental health. Every group that is except one. There was one solitary subgroup of people who actually saw an increase in their mental health. People deeply committed to a religious community. The Gallup poll showed that the only subgroup that was able to navigate the last couple of years in a way that actually improved their mental health were, quote, weekly religious service attenders. That could be in person or online. Even during the nightmarish couple of years we've just had, folks who were deeply committed to a religious community experienced not just the leveling of mental health, but a four-point increase in mental health and rated their mental health 12 points higher than the average American. And this is bigger than one Gallup poll. Did you know that research done by psychologists and social scientists universally support the conclusions that commitment to a healthy religious community is good for human health? I can point you to dozens of studies that show religious engagement leads to higher levels of physical health, mental health, resilience, happiness, pro-social behavior, altruism, and more. Now, this doesn't mean the church doesn't have its flaws, right? I spend so much time talking about and trying to fix those flaws that a lot of people accuse me of hating the church, but I don't. I really don't. I love the church. I've been a pastor since I was 19. I've devoted my entire life to serving in communities of faith. I do not critique the church because I hate it. I critique the church because I love it. And I deeply believe in the potential of Jesus using healthy churches to change people's lives for the better. I don't think anyone says it more clearly than the late Rachel Held Evans in her final book called Wholehearted Faith. She said, humans are fickle, faith can be fragile, and the church, that rambunctious collection of the fickle and the fragile, is a broken and complicated institution. Wholehearted faith, though, means putting yourself at risk of being hurt by that institution and its people. Yet I have not managed to find a corner of it where grace cannot break through and where there is not enough spiritual oxygen for grace to grow. If we make ourselves vulnerable to the possibility of being hurt, we also open ourselves up to the hope of healing, to the hope of being touched by that ridiculous grace. This morning, we were bringing our identity series to a close by talking about what it means to be a family. Over the last five weeks, we've been looking at individual identities, what it means to be beloved, united with Christ, holy, treasured, and a masterpiece. But today, we are wrapping up this series by looking at our collective identity as the family of God, what it means to be a family and why it's worth being a part of, even when it's hard. Because here's the truth, y'all. We need each other. We need each other. If I have learned anything over the last few years, 
it is this. We need each other. Isolation doesn't work. Being alone doesn't work. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter your race or religion or sexual orientation or anything like that. All of us can isolate. All of us can feel alone. We know what that's like. And we need each other. And it's not just me telling you that. It's not just Rachel Held Evans telling you that. It's not even just God and the scriptures telling you that. As I mentioned, polling, psychological analysis, even scientific research are all saying the same thing. I want to stop for a second and just think about how crazy it is that all of those groups came to the same conclusion on something. God, the Bible, pastors, psychologists, researchers, social scientists, academics, secular pollsters, people committed to religion and people who could not care less all agree that commitment to a healthy religious community promotes human flourishing. We need each other. And I'm up here talking to you about this because I want each and every one of us to flourish. That's why we're camping out this fall and spring on these themes of, of healing and wholeness, spending a year talking about what does it mean to go on this journey of healing and wholeness. We want everyone to experience the fullness of life that Jesus talks about. We want everyone to be surrounded by people who love them without qualification and who would do anything to support them. We want to make sure that everyone has something healthy and life-giving to hold on to during the most challenging couple of years that most of us have ever known. So let's talk about what it means to be a group of people committed to those things. Let's talk about our collective identity as the family of God. Sound good? Christianity is a communal faith. It is meant to be lived alongside each other. The church is a family of siblings. It is not meant to be hierarchical with some people serving as parents and others as children, but with all of us being siblings, God as our parent. This is why the Bible frequently depicts God as both our mother and our father who nurses, protects, and comforts us because we are a family of siblings and God is our parent who loves and cares for us deeply. We are God's children called to follow God and to care for our siblings. But living out a communal faith like Christianity in a hyper-individualistic society like America is hard. I'm convinced that the biggest obstacle to being a part of God's family in deep and meaningful ways is our culture's obsession with individualism, that we don't need other people. This myth of self-sufficiency is the enemy of living in community with our sisters and brothers in Christ. Because again, we cannot live this life alone. We need each other. We were never meant to do this alone. Being a part of God's family means rejecting the lie that we can do everything on our own and embracing the truth that God designed us, uniquely designed us for vulnerable relationships with one another. It means showing up for your siblings when they are in need. And it means allowing them to show up for you when you are in need, which I know can sometimes be the hardest thing of all. So what could that look like? How does this work? Well, the persecutor of Christians turned pastor named Paul wrote about this numerous times in his letters to the first century churches, which make up a large part of the New Testament in our Bibles. He was all about this, and the early church struggled with this too. 
I think the clearest exhortation about being God's family comes from his letter to the church in Corinth. So we're going to look at it. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. You can follow along or the verses will be on the screen behind you. I'm going to read the whole thing kind of through, and then we're going to talk through it. Paul says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ, the church. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. We have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not a part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we sometimes regard as less honorable are the ones we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that the extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. I'm going to say that one one more time. All the members care for each other. If one part suffers, suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts rejoice. All of you together are Christ's body. Each of you is a part of it. So Paul tells us that the family of God functions like a body with many parts. And he makes it very clear, right? There is absolutely no hierarchies between the parts, which means there is absolutely no hierarchies between siblings in God's family. Paul's also quick to anticipate some common objections that might occur. Some might, may feel ashamed about which part of the body that they are, but that's not the way of Jesus. He says all are needed and all are honored. Some people may think of themselves as more important than other people or even want to get rid of other parts, but that's not the way of Jesus. All are needed and all are honored. God's design for his family has always been and will always be all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places playing all different kinds of parts. You see, our diversity is actually our superpower. We're better when we're all different and together. Okay, so we're this diverse family committed to honoring, supporting, and holding each other accountable. But, but outside of that, how does this family actually work? Well, what are our shared values, our collective identity as a family? In their groundbreaking book called The Other Half of Church, Jim Wilder and Michelle Hendricks call this the group identity. They write this, group identity is not a common term for most Christians, but it plays a crucial and overlooked role in our transformation. Group identity forms our character. Identity formation is a big hole in spiritual formation. The church over the centuries has appealed to the creeds. Creeds are these kind of ancient uh, sayings of like what Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. He says, creeds answer the question, as followers of Jesus, what do we believe? But group identity statements, they're similar, but they define character. Instead of focusing primarily on what we believe, group identity answers the question, as followers of Jesus, what kind of people are we? Because here's the thing, we can share beliefs all we want, 
right? There are people doing some really heinous things in our world today that would say they share the exact same beliefs as any other Christian. What is most important, what Jesus most emphasizes is the way those beliefs actually transform the way we live. This way of Jesus, right? Not this faith that is just intellectually assenting to some set of doctrines, but a faith that enlivens us to pursue the way of Jesus in every part of our lives. Well, Paul felt the same way, and he goes on to make it very clear what the foundational shared value is in the family of God. In the next few verses, he talks about all different kinds of spiritual gifts, how they should be practiced in God's family, and then he says this, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body so I could boast about it but I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Our foundational shared value as the family of God is love. If we do not love others, nothing else matters. Now, it's not just me and Paul saying this. This is straight from the teachings of Jesus. See, when they asked Jesus what the most important thing was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And when Jesus had one final opportunity to teach his followers how to carry his message forward after his death and resurrection, Jesus said this, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Before and above everything else, the group identity of any healthy church family must be love. It must be love. And here at Restore... We've done a bunch of work over the last few years to flesh out what choosing to be people of love looks like in our context. In fact, we spent the last nine months last year walking through six different sermon series talking about these six kind of measures of love that we've come up with. At Restore, we seek to be a group of people who are part of the family, who depend on Jesus, who live invitationally, don't isolate, who pursue justice for the marginalized, who look for ways to be generous, and who include everyone. You see, we believe these things are what it looks like for our church to follow the way of Jesus, to have a group identity that is found, founded in love. This is what love looks like in action. And it all starts with leaning into our collective identity as the family of God. That means showing up for and supporting our siblings it, makes sure, it means making sure no one feels left out, no one feels left behind, no one feels less than. It means realizing that when one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. That's why we do the good news time. We raise our hand up and we say, I got engaged, I started a nonprofit, my kids got all A's, and we say, that is amazing, yes. It's why we have times of lament and prayer together. When we walk through hard times together, we say, come, talk about it. Here's a shoulder to cry on. Here's someone to pray with. 
This is what it looks like to be people of love, a family of God. It means realizing that we are in this thing together, that we need each other. I love the way Dr. King says it. We must all learn to live together as brothers or we will perish together as fools. We are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality and whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is why, this is the way it is structured. A contemporary of Dr. King, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was an incredible woman who helped lead the civil rights movement, she used to be famous for saying, nobody's free until everybody's free. We are caught up in this thing together. None of us are whole until we are all whole. None of us are healed until we are all healed. So here's my challenge for us as I close. Let's choose to see each other as siblings. And let's choose to see our church as this radically diverse and inclusive family of siblings. And siblings love each other, right? Siblings sacrifice for each other, stand up for each other. Siblings see a brother or a sister who is hurting and they come alongside. Siblings see a brother or a sister who is being marginalized, being oppressed, and they come over and they say, no more. And families? Families show up for each other, right? Healthy families don't always agree. Healthy families go through conflicts. Healthy families sometimes have to have really hard conversations. But at the end of the day, healthy families love each other and healthy families show up for each other. We will never believe all the same things. We will never behave in all the same ways. But despite what you may have been told, that's not what a church family is. I want to go back to Rachel one more time before we close. She says, the church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus at the center. This is us. Let's remember that. Let's keep showing up for one another. And let's keep showing this love of Jesus and telling the story of Jesus to everybody that we encounter. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for your word. For the design of your family, what a, what a radical thing, God, in the first century and in the 21st century. I'm so grateful for who you are, for how you've made us, for how you've structured us, the church. I pray that we would be people that have a group identity of love, not just one we talk about in this room and, and tell each other that it's true, one that everyone would know us by, God. And when they think of restore as a part of God's family, they would think of a group of people defined by love, sacrificial love, love that doesn't just talk about things, love that is about things. Make that true of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.